Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the final episode of Clarifying Catholicism's series on the Ecumenical Councils. As always, I'd like to recommend Joseph Kelly's book, The uh, Ecumenical Councils of the Catholic Church, a history from which most of this series' content has been drawn from. To finish off the series, we're going to examine a few trends and observations I drew from studying the Church Councils. People always tell me that a Game of Thrones-style drama about the Old Testament would make a great series. I agree. Though I gotta say, the ecumenical councils of the Catholic Church are an underrated Hollywood masterpiece in the making. It has war, sex, torture, betrayal, and Santa Claus slapping a heretic. In all seriousness, here are a few lessons we can learn from studying the Church Councils. Number one, always take things in context. I have yet to make a video on the subject of teaching authority and levels of doctrine, but a core component of discerning to what degree of certainty a conciliar statement has involves determining what the purpose of the council was. For example, if the purpose of a council was to comment on the nature of the Holy Trinity but casually mention something about the Blessed Virgin Mary, its passing comment on the Blessed Mother probably shouldn't be interpreted with a high degree of authority. Another lesson we can learn from the councils is that politics corrupts the church. I would like to produce a series on the history of papal authority someday, which uh, definitely touches on this theme. But throughout history, we see time after time that the church functions best when it focuses strictly on spiritual rather than temporal matters. Sure, there were a few good popes who could dual wield the swords of earthly and heavenly affairs, but in my opinion, the bad largely outweighs the good. From the get-go, we see Eastern emperors dominate theological conversations, manipulating their bishops like puppets. While the Western popes had more autonomy until they began investing more time into running the temporal affairs of Rome. By the crowning of Charlemagne, we see how a pope making a deal with a politician is, well, like making a deal with the devil. For no matter how well-meaning one king may be, his successor could easily flip a switch and hold the pope hostage both figuratively and literally. This was especially manifest in Gallicanism when French bishops pledged their allegiance to their king rather than to the pope in theological matters. I hear a lot of young Catholics longing for a return to the integralist monarchic state. To them, I recommend opening up a history book and learning about how rough it was to run a church that was so easily corrupted by politics. Finally, I'd like to stress how one council's solutions are another council's problems. In the post-Vatican II age, a lot of people exaggerate how divisive the Second Vatican Council's legacy is. And while there have indeed been polarizing responses to the Council, I have yet to see any bishops torn limb from limb or set ablaze like there were in the aftermath of Chalcedon. For a quick recap, Nicaea I equated Jesus with God, but it failed to adequately explain its terms and distinctions, which caused great confusion for non-participants of the Council. This led to Constantinople I, which clarified some language behind Nicaea. However, though people were comfortable with the idea of Jesus being God, they did not understand what this meant for his humanity. This led to Ephesus, which was so chaotic that it only exacerbated problems and caused more divisions in the church. That led to Chalcedon, whose claim that Jesus was both human and God at the same time led to several centuries of theological infighting and disagreements over what it meant for Jesus to be human. That led to Constantinople 2 and 3, which attempted to clarify what it meant for Jesus to be human. We finally catch a break in the whole nature of Jesus thing with Nicaea 2, which instead focuses on combating anti-icon or iconoclast movements in the East. When unity between East and West is disrupted, Constantinople 4 is called. 
but it was not, however, accepted by the East. By this time, the Western Church has become so bureaucratically bloated that it requires not one, not two, not three, but four Lateran councils to address corruption. This is followed by Lyon's one and two, as well as Vienne, which also deal with anti-corruption and reform. None of these are enough to prevent three men from claiming the papacy, though, which led to Constance, which declared one of them to be legitimate and, again, passed some much-needed checks and balances on the papacy. All of those checks and balances fail, though, as the Pope flexes his muscle during Florence. Lateran V attempts to fix the corruption, again, but it's a little too late for Christians who are frustrated with the papacy and hierarchy. These Christians split off into Protestantism. That leads to Trent whose theology is quite comprehensive, but also stiff and rigid. The stiffness and rigidity, combined with a bloody first impression of Enlightenment liberalism, leads to Vatican I's consolidation of papal authority and rebuke of modern ideas. Vatican I's anti-modern approach only created more problems for the Church, who is finally forced into bringing new tactics to address the modern world in Vatican II. How such tactics will play out in the long run remains to be seen. Well, that about wraps up this uh, episode and this series of Clarifying Catholicism's examination of the Church Councils. Feel free to give us feedback in the comments as we look forward to our next series, which I predict will be all about teaching authority in the Catholic Church, featuring one of my favorite theologians, Francis Sullivan. Thank you very much. Have a great day. God bless you. And now I'd like to give a very special shout out to Dr. David Dawson Vasquez, Professor of Systematic Theology. Dr. Dawson teaches at several universities across Rome, and he was foundational in fostering my interest in systematic theology when I studied abroad for a semester. Dr. Dawson has been an invaluable resource through the series, giving feedback, reviewing, and critiquing each episode. He also has a YouTube channel of his own, which I will link to in the description.